Well, I hope you had a good lunch and some time to uh, blink your eyes and just rest and that you've come back um, renewed and ready to go. This is always the hardest session after lunch, so I'll do my best to kind of bang the pulpit and keep you awake and keep you focused. Uh, I was handed two books to tell you about uh, that are back in the bookstore Um, One is by Al Martin on preaching in the Holy Spirit, uh, preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. I've written the endorsement on the back of the book, and it's a very helpful book um, to expand the thoughts of the need for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the preacher. Uh, The other book I was handed um, is a book that I've written called The Evangelistic Zeal of George Whitfield. We, we talked about evangelistic preaching in our exposition, and I don't think there's a better way to learn to do expo- uh, evangelistic preaching than by observing a master. And I personally believe that the greatest evangelist God has given to the church since the Apostle Paul was George Whitfield, and certainly the greatest in terms of mass evangelism. Um, he is probably the greatest man that history has somewhat forgotten. Uh, You're familiar with the name, but how much do you really know about George Whitfield? If I could be anyone in church history, I've said several times, I I would be George Whitfield. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this of Whitfield, other men merely existed. Whitfield lived. Robert Murray McShane, the favorite son of Scotland who flamed out for God at age 29, said, oh, for just one week of Whitfield's life. If I could just taste and feel what it would be like to be Whitfield for just one week. That's all I ask. He was the leader of awakenings on both sides of the Atlantic at the same time. He crossed the Atlantic 13 times on a ship. He spent about uh, three years of his life crossing the Atlantic, going from England to the colonies, the colonies back to England. And he was the leader of the evangelical awakening in England and Scotland and Wales And at the same time, he was the leader of the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards stayed in one pulpit in one place at Northampton. It was Whitfield who was on the back of a horse and on a ship going up and down the eastern seacoast of the American colonies, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. It was estimated that 80% of the colonists had seen Whitfield face to face and heard him preach. It's an amazing account. When he preached in Philadelphia, he preached to more than twice the population that lived in Philadelphia. Yeah. When he went to Boston, he preached to twice the population of Boston. Just see law. Just pause and meditate. When he was 24 years old in one summer in London... He preached to a million people when he was 24 years old. 
in multiple different settings, as many as 60,000 people at one time. Uninvited, he just showed up. They, there were so many people, they had to pass him in over their head with their hands to get him into the middle. And he stands up on a stone wall. I've come here today to talk to you about your soul. And he launches into the nature and the necessity of the new birth. And, and, and hearts are just struck and come under deep conviction and are converted into the kingdom of heaven. Wherever he went, the hand of God was upon him for good in unprecedented ways, without marketing, without prior communication, a setup, without schedule, just, I mean, he basically just shows up. Uh, when he preached to coal miners, their faces covered with soot, which you'll said there's two white lines down their cheeks, and he finally realizes it's the tears washing away the soot from their faces. There, there's never been a man in the body of Christ like George Whitfield. So I, I would encourage you to be acquainted with this man. He has lit a fire in me. What God did in him, I've prayed and asked that God would do in me. And he is the quintessential evangelist, I believe, of all time, and perhaps other than the Apostle Paul. But as far as numbers, unprecedented, way beyond. So it's estimated that he preached 18,000 sermons in 34 years of ministry. When you add other sermons, it totals 30,000 sermons in 34 years. You can do the math on that. It's almost three sermons a day for 34 years. There has never been such an industrious, energetic, driven, persevering, preacher of the word of God and to go to where the people are and to preach to them. So um, I would commend you, there's probably only a couple copies of this, you can, Amazon or whatever, I I just tell you this, if you want to preach, you need an IV hookup of what God was doing in Whitfield's life. I'm always asked, what are the three greatest books I've ever read? What are the five greatest books I've ever read? Number two on the list is, is the two-volume biography of George Whitfield by Arnold Dalmore. Don't read the one volume, read the two-volume. Better than that, read my book on Whitfield. <laughs> In fact, much better than that, okay? Um, it, I, it just changed my life. It made me want to preach. One thing to know how to preach is something else to want to preach. It made me want to preach. You need to know Mr. Whitfield. All right, we want to pick back up. Uh, we hadn't gotten too far. And as you can tell, we got a lot of room to cover. And I guess I, w- I would just add this. Maybe this is the best time to say this because we're, we're, we're just barely scratching the surface. I'm the professor of preaching at the Master's Seminary. I fly out there a certain number of times a year. I teach first, second, and third year preaching. But I'm also now the director of the Doctor of Ministry in Expository Preaching. 
And uh, Dr. MacArthur has asked me to take that over, and I said I'll do it on two conditions. Number one, that you'll come into the classroom and teach with me. And number two, that I can invite the greatest preachers in the world to come in and to teach in this um, curriculum. And they may have a different view on a couple of secondary areas of doctrine, but these are champions of the faith. And so I have assembled, I think, the finest faculty in the world for expository preaching for a doctor of ministry. And um, if anyone's interested in pursuing a doctor of ministry, you fly to to the States for one week in January, two weeks in July. And Everything that I'm trying to give here, you, you would just get the full dose, but not just from me, but from John MacArthur himself in the classroom. But uh, Sinclair Ferguson from Scotland, um, Alistair Begg from Cleveland, uh, Carl Truman from Philadelphia, um, Derek Thomas, um, Daniel Block. Um, it, it's just a killer lineup. And I've just gone to each seminary and handpicked the best professor at each seminary and then a few other expositors and just put it all together into murder's row. And uh, if, if, if you want to get to the next level of preaching, um, and you need to have a master's to get into the doctoral program, um, come talk to me and uh, would love to tell you more. Or you can just go online the Master's Seminary, but it is, I think, the finest doctor of ministry program in the world on expository preaching because a seminary is, is not the building, it's not the bricks, it's not the trees or the grass, it's the professor. And now with computers, it's not even so much the library, it's the professor who's standing in front of you to teach you, shape you, mold you, influence you. And we have world-class expositors from around the world coming in to teach. So we'd love to have you uh, come be a part. So if that is of help to you in your journey to improve, let me know. All right, let's look. We've looked at the essential terms. Uh, let's look at the biblical words. And it's, it's not so much what the Oxford English Dictionary says something is. It's what does Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say something is. It's what, did, what do the pastoral epistles say? What does the book of Acts say? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to f- blow through this faster than I normally do. I, I normally really take time on this, but um, I, I want to get to some more material, and I know I have a limited time with you. Um, and so what are the biblical words? And... and, and when you look in the, uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament under Caruso, uh, it mentions that there are some 34 different words in the New Testament that are used in, in some related way to preaching or teaching. And so I want to take m- most of these words and line them up under either expository or under preaching to show that what was taking place in the book of Acts and as recorded in the pastoral epistles and in the ministry of Christ, it was expository preaching. When you put your arm around all these words, the composite 
is expository preaching. So under expository, just some of these words, didasco, uh, if you're familiar with the Greek language, you understand that this is the main word for teaching. It's, it's really at the heart of expository. We are teaching the Word of God. Acts eleven twenty six. for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. Day after day after day after day for over a year, they're just teaching, 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 teaching the Word of God. If you're an expositor, that's what you are. You are a teacher of the Word of God. Acts thirteen thirty five. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching the Word of the Lord. That's important because Dr. Luke, as he records this, makes a distinction between teaching and preaching. Otherwise, it's just redundant to say teaching and preaching. And I think the order is important there. Where he goes teaching first, then preaching. Uh, Acts 20.20, 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Wherever Paul was, he's teaching the Word of God. He's in, a, he's in a house, small group Bible study, smaller gatherings, teaching the Word of God. He's standing in front of a large group of people. What's he doing? He's teaching the Word of God. The next word, dianoigo, means to open up. As to open up the sense or the meaning of a passage. In fact, the, the prefix dia means to open it up thoroughly that you take the Word of God and open up its meaning. You're not hydroplaning over the surface. You're like a deep sea diver. You're going down into the text and opening it up. Luke 24, 31 and 32, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Were not our hearts burning within us while He was explaining to us on the road, while He was explaining the Scriptures to us? That's what Jesus did with the two disciples opening up the meaning of the Word of God. Acts 17.3, Paul reasoned with them from the Scripture, explaining, that's, that's dianoigono, explaining, opening up. Next word, paratithemi, means to prove by setting side by side. Para is the prefix. You can hear parallel, lining up things side by side, like rails on a railroad track side by side. That that's what we do as expositors. We're just lining things up in a very orderly way. We put the Old Testament prophecy, the New Testament fulfillment. We put this text, we put cross-references side by side with it to support what we're saying. Um, we, we are proving by setting things side by side. Acts 17.3, Paul was giving evidence. And that, that's the idea of giving evidence evidence. You you place the facts side by side. Ectithemy means to set forth the meaning of or set forth the meaning out of the ek. Uh, Acts 28.23, he was explaining by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. The the, the key here as it comes into the New American Standard is explaining. That's what we do. We stand up to preach the first thing we do is explain what this text means. Catecheo means to instruct, to teach, to inform. Acts 14, 19. Um, 
all of these words carry the idea of teaching and explaining the Word of God. Now, under preaching, caruso, we've already talked about this, to proclaim, to herald. I I don't need to go back through all of that, but this is what Jesus did. He was a preacher. He was heralding the truth. God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. Selah. Pause and meditate. And when he sent out his disciples, he didn't send them out to be a drama team. He sent them out to be preachers of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the Word. We already looked at that. 1 Corinthians 1, 23. We preach Christ crucified. Acts 9, 20. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, this is the Son of God. From from the very outset, from the very beginning, Paul is lit up to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Heralding, declaring, announcing, uh, proclaiming. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul wasn't a kicked-back, laid-back, cool communicator. As though he's at Starbucks or, what is it, bug and, mug and bean. I said bug and mean. <laughs> you know, just kind of hanging out. He was a man on a mission. Euangelizomai, um, in the middle of that word, angel, or angel, means messenger. You, E-U, at the beginning of the word, means good, like a eulogy, means a good word, you would say, at a funeral. Euangelizo means to announce good news, to proclaim glad tidings. That's how William Tyndale translated uh, the word in the the first time the English Bible was translated out of the original Greek. Um, At the end of the day, we are declarers of good news. Acts 4.18, Jesus reading Isaiah 61.1 says, He anointed me to preach the gospel. Three words in the English, one word in the Greek. Acts 8, 4, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Acts 8, 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Acts 14, 7, they fled to the cities of uh, Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Acts 14, 21, they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. Kataangelo means to announce, to declare, to proclaim publicly, to make known to all. Um, it comes into the New American Standard as proclaim. Acts 13.5, they began to proclaim the word of God. Acts 13.38, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, 
that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Acts 17.3. Ana angelo also means to proclaim. The idea is to make known, to announce. Sometimes, it's sometimes translated declared in the New American Standard, Acts 20.20. 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Pari si azomai means to speak openly. It's really two Greek words that come together that all speech. It doesn't refer so much to the tone of the voice as it does the breadth of the message. It means to tell it all, all speech. That's what boldness is. You don't hold back. Uh, It means to use freedom in speaking, to to speak freely, confidently, boldly. It conveys the idea of shouting it from the housetops and holding back nothing. Acts 9, 27, at Damascus, he spoke out boldly in the name of Jesus. Verse 29, and he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem and speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Diamar Tiramai means to declare thoroughly, solemnly, or to solemnly testify. It's the word that's used in Acts 18.5. Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 20.21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, nuthateo, to put in mind. And the implication is to caution, to reprove, to warn of imminent danger, to admonish, to urge, to warn of perilous hazards if wrong ways are pursued. Acts 20, 31, for a period of three days I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Each one. No one's above admonishment. Colossians 1.28. We proclaim Him, referring to Christ. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man. Let me add a word that's not in your list. Pytho. P-E-I-T-H-O. P-E-I-T-H-O. It's a very important word. It means to persuade. To persuade others to believe. To convince by argument. To induce one by words. To move. To induce one to do something. I think there are a lot of expositors who are just scared to do that. Acts 13.43 Paul and Barnabas were speaking to them and were urging them, there's the word, urging them to continue in the grace of God. Acts 18, 4, Paul was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. You want to preach like Paul? Not a bad role model. 
persuade. 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Bible preachers are to be persuaders in order to bring men and women to the point of believing in Christ. And Paul even talks in 1 Corinthians 9 about winning people to Christ. So these are the key words. And when you pull all these together, you you really have put your arms around what expository preaching is. It involves proclaiming the truth, declaring good news, speaking openly and and boldly, uh, to teach the truth, to teach things side by side, to open up the meaning of Scripture, to warn, to urge. All of these are biblical words. All of these are what the apostles did. All of these, this is what Jesus did. So, these are the biblical terms. Some basic definitions. I just want to hit this very quickly. John Calvin, he says, it's the explication. By that he means the explanation. The explication of Scripture. Unfolding the natural and true meaning while making application to the life of the congregation. Calvin said, preaching is the public exposition of Scripture by the man sent from God, in which God himself is present in judgment and in grace. Calvin had a view of the Lord's Supper that God was unusually present in the taking of the Lord's Supper. He also believed that God is unusually present when the Bible is opened and the man of God expounds the Scripture and proclaims it. That that God is unusually present, bringing the Word home to the hearts of the people. I like how J.I. Packer defines it. He says, the true meaning of preaching is that the preacher should become a mouthpiece for his text. You're like a megaphone for the text, opening it up and applying it as a word from God to his hearers, talking only in order that the text itself may speak and be heard. A lot of preachers talk so that they can be heard. No, it's so that the Word of God can be heard. And then Packer boils it down to three words. He says, it is letting text talk. That's what expository preaching is. It's not letting the culture talk. It's not letting the world talk. The world's going to hell. It's letting text talk. So, these are just some essential meanings. Because of time, I'm going to slip over. Let's come to the necessary balance. Remember I talked earlier about the man on the horse. Luther said is given to falling off to one side or the other. You've got to stay right there in the middle. And I, I think that is true with expository preaching. Um, Because expository preaching involves both elements, both expository and preaching. And one without the other is deadly. 
imbalance is, is dangerous. Well, what if you have all exposition and no preaching? What, what, what have you got? You have all information and no exhortation. You have all content and no challenge. Exposition without preaching is all cerebral, cognitive. Given enough of it for a length of time, it is stoic, cold, calculating, clinical, and can become boring. It is all head and no heart. And it produces people who are all hearing and little doing. All exposition and no preaching produces a congregation of eggheads who have little passion and little personality. It's almost cult-like. And little push and drive to do God's will. All exposition and no preaching imparts information with little transformation. That's one extreme. And I think a lot of people, as I said earlier, react against expository preaching because that's what they think. It's all exposition and no preaching. Now, what about the other end of the spectrum? All preaching and no exposition. It's, I'm going to say equally dangerous. I think it's worse. Because at least with the other, you've got content. With this, all you've got is thin air. All preaching and no exposition. It's just a bunch of hot air. It's loud, but there's no life. It's shallow. Earlier it was said, a thousand miles wide, a half inch deep. It's shallow. It's superficial. It's all surface. I put it this way. It's all style, no substance. It's all theatrics and no theology. We would say in America, it's all sizzle and no steak. I mean, where's the beef? All preaching and no exposition fills the building without filling the pulpit. Can you see that? We got, it. we got that in spades in America. And you've got that going on here too. It trivializes the Scripture, if not abandons the Scripture. It abuses the pulpit and it manipulates people. And they really end up living their Christian life vicariously through the preacher rather than through the Lord Jesus Christ because he's talking about him rather than Christ. 
So balance is dynamic when you bring these two together. Don't let them be separated. Don't fall off the horse one side or the other, but you bring together expository and you bring together preaching and boom, now you've got power. The Puritans used to put it this way, it's like there needs to be a fire in the pulpit. The pulpit needs to be on fire. And a fire gives off two elements. It gives off light and it gives off heat. And in a pulpit that's on fire, it gives off the light of exposition. And it gives off the heat of preaching. And by the way, you cannot separate the two if there's a real fire. With a real fire, you get both. You get both light and heat. There is the light of knowledge. There's the light of the truth. There's the light of illumination. There's the light of divine revelation. But there is also the heat of passion and the heat of fervency and the, and the heat of urging and admonishing and proclaiming. It's not an either or, it's a both and. That's, what, that's why Martin, Luther, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that expository preaching is theology on fire. And it is coming through a man who is on fire. One one young preacher came to Spurgeon and said, Nobody comes to hear me preach. Why, Why don't people come to hear me preach? Spurgeon said, Douse yourself with gas, strike a match, set yourself on fire. People will come to watch you burn. And, and, and some preachers just need to get on fire. And let people come watch you burn for the glory of God. So, at the end, before we went to lunch, I said expository preaching is directed at the entire person. Mind, affections, and will. This is what we're doing with expository preaching. We are instructing the mind. We are igniting the heart. And we are impelling the will. All three. Not two out of the three, not one out of the three. This is our goal. To put it another way, we want to illumine the mind, we want to inspire the heart, and we want to invite the will. All three are necessary. We explain the meaning of the text to the minds of the listeners. We desire that their affections be inflamed. And we enlist and we encourage the will. And by the way, it's in that order. You can't reverse the order. It's the mind, then the affections, then the will. You start with the mind. You teach the mind, 
the affections are ignited in response to the truth they have learned with the mind. And you cannot invite the will until you have instructed the mind and their hearts are now desirous of pursuing the truth. So this is what expository preaching is. Now, there are tragic departures. We, we've already talked about that. I, I don't really want to waste my time going through the tragic departures. I, I think you know what's off the beaten path. Um, let's come now to the marks of expository preaching. I've got 11 marks here that I want to, to walk through. And these further define and describe what expository preaching is. And before we talk about how to do it, we've got to know what it is. All right, this is where it starts. It is text-driven. This is starting at the most basic point. An expository preacher is simply a Bible preacher. I mean, how simple is that? Start with the text, stay with the text. And here's the deal. You say what the text says, you go where the text goes. You teach what the text teaches. You warn what the text warns. You rebuke what the text rebukes. You promise what the text promises. I like to think of it like this. Uh, uh, a water skier. There, there's the boat. Here's the rope. Here's the, uh, the handle you hang on to. The skier is in the water. He's got his skis on. He lays hold of the, of the bar. The boat takes off, pulls him up out of the water, and he's now on top of the water. Guess what? He can only go where the boat goes. Boat goes right, he goes right. Boat goes left, he goes left. Boat cannot go right and he go left. And as long as he hangs on to that bar, he's kind of walking on water. I mean, he's on the top. The moment he lets go of that bar, he's going down, he's going down immediately, he's going down fast. That's the way expository preaching works. You just hang on to the text, and you go where the text takes you. And you, you say what it says. That's what expository preaching is, and it is rooted and grounded on this fundamental principle of what we believe about the Bible itself. This becomes the mandate for expository preaching. Let me just blow through this very quickly. Number one, the inspiration of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Theonoustos, breathed out, God breathed. It's the very breath of God. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And guess what? You and I have nothing to say apart from the Word of God. Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture that what has come out of the mouth of God is without error. It's rooted and grounded in the very character of God, that, that God is truth and God cannot lie. Titus 1, 2, God cannot lie. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. John 17, 17, your word is truth. 
Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is tested. The idea is put something in a, in a furnace, a precious metal in a furnace, and, and it's tested so as to the heat removes all the impurities and what is left behind is a precious, pure metal. That's what it means. The Scripture is tested. All the impurities, there, there are no impurities in it. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. John, excuse Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. The only part of your worship service for which you can claim perfection is the reading of the Scripture. Third, authority. The authority of Scripture. The Bible speaks with the very authority of God Himself. The Scripture has the right to rule the church and to rule the lives of those who are in the church. Psalm 19.7 is the law of the Lord. It's not the suggestions of the Lord. It's not the options of the Lord. It's not the opinions of the Lord. It is the commanding authority of the Lord. Psalm 19.8, the commandment of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.15, this we say to you by the word of the Lord. The highest arbitrator in the church is the Word of God. Even the elders are under the Word of God. The pastor is under the Word of God. The entire congregation is under the Word of God. No one is equal to the Word. No one is above the Word. Everything yields to the Word of God. Tradition yields to the Word of God. The church constitution yields to the Word of God. Everything in the church yields to the Word of God. So why would you preach anything else? Fourth, the perspicuity of the Scripture. That means the lucidness, the clearness of the Scripture. It is the most understandable book that has ever been written. Matthew 12, verse 5. Have you not read in the law? Can you read? You have two eyeballs. You have two brain cells that are touching someplace between your ears. Then you should know this. Matthew 19, verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Can you read? then you should know this. Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? What did Rome say throughout the Dark Ages? The people are too stupid. We're going to keep the Bible from them. They won't, we won't give it to them in their language. We'll preach in Latin. We'll tell you what you want to believe. If we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. That's Rome. The reformers came along and said no. To the very contrary. The Bible is the most understandable book that has ever been written. Certainly in matters of faith and practice. Admittedly, there are some parts where even Peter said it's hard to understand Paul. But those aren't in the cardinal core doctrines of the Bible. Psalm 19, verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure. That means you can see through it. 
It's not a muddy river where you can't see the bottom. It's pure. It's clean. You can see, like looking into a portion of a river or an ocean, you can see through it to the bottom. It's pure. You want to be understood? You want people to grasp what you're saying? Preach the Bible. The sufficiency of Scripture. But the Bible is fully able to carry out God's purposes upon the earth in saving and sanctifying people. First Peter 1 Peter 1.23, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring Word of God. You want, be, you want people to be saved in your ministry? Preach the Word. It would be easier to grow oak trees by planting marbles than for someone to be saved in your church by preaching the culture or preaching the world. You're going to have to preach the truth of the Word of God. And the same with sanctifying people, conforming them in the image of Christ. Like produces like. The Holy Word produces what kind of a life? Holy life. John 17, 17, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. How about this one? Psalm 119, verse 9. How shall a young man keep his way pure? How shall a young girl keep her way pure? How shall an old man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word, verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. What sanctifying power there is in the word of God. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path that gives guidance and direction in this dark world. The immutability of Scripture. This is why we preach, this is why we're text driven. The Bible never changes. It's forever the same. Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. You know how long forever is? Forever. You're not having to wait at the mailbox to have the latest appendix added to the back of your Bible. You're not having to download the free ebook on the 67th book to be added to the Bible or Acts 29 or Romans 17. No, it's immutable. Nothing changes. I went to law school after I graduated from college. I spent the whole semester studying case law, constitutional law, civil law, et cetera, et cetera. Your whole, exam is, your whole grade is the final exam. I go in for the final exam. Guess what? They changed the law. How frustrating is this? This is stupid. This is a dog chasing its tail. I mean, this is, this is going nowhere fast. Um, we need Christian lawyers, but I just realized this isn't for me. I want to study a law that never changes. And that's what drew me in part to the Bible, that what I study in my 20s, I'll preach in my 70s. What I memorize in my 30s, it'll still be in my mind, and it'll still be operational in my 60s. I love that. I don't have to change my sermons. You want to have a contemporary ministry? Great, preach the Bible. There's nothing more up to date than the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 160. Every one of your righteous commandments is everlasting. Just across the board. It's timeless. Transcends generations. 
You want to be able to communicate with young people? If you're an old person, preach the Bible. You want to be able to communicate with older people? If you're a young preacher, great, preach the Bible. It's the only thing that's going to transcend generations. Or you're going to have to have five morning services. One for the cool and hip, and one for the old and tired, and three more in between. I mean, everything in between. I hate that. I just absolutely hate that. Just dividing up the body of Christ. You can't even come to church on Sunday and worship together. The only way to get everybody in one room at one time is to exposit the Word of God. Because it will speak to every heart in the building, no matter how old they are, no matter what their gender is, no matter what their background is. Uh, You don't have to have one of these churches where everybody looks the same, talks the same, dresses the same, and are all out of the same socioeconomic group. You can have it across the board, rich, poor, black, white, educated, uneducated, everybody in the building. This is what we all understand and what all connects with all of us. It's the Bible. That's where we're so committed to expository preaching. You can't get everybody else in the same building, in the same room at the same time and talk to them if you're preaching from any other book. And then finally, the invincibility of Scripture. The the Bible is a superior weapon that is able to overcome all human resistance and usher in spirituality when accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is invincible. Jeremiah 23, 29 is not my word like a hammer that shatters a rock. Ephesians 6, 17, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able. You get that word able? It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because the Bible is what it is. Inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, all-sufficient, immutable, and invincible. You would be absolutely nuts to preach anything else. I mean, we, we, we ought to to have a saliva test on you if you would preach anything else than the Bible. I mean, you're, 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 you're smoking something <laughs> because your brains are not working. Like, you're pulling out a plastic spoon to go into battle when you could have this two-edged sword of the Word of God. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, you're going to battle with a butter knife when you could have the hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces with the Word of God. This is why we're expositors, because of what the Word of God is. Much to say, so little time. While we're under this, do you have in your notes methods of expository preaching? Under text-driven? All right, I'm going to give it to you anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that there? Thanks, Warwick. All right. 
We're under text-driven, and we just talked about the text. Inspired, inerrant, infallible, etc., etc. That's why we are text-driven. I want to talk to you right now under text-driven about the different methods, different approaches. And we alluded to it earlier. Here they are. Number one, sequential. By that, we mean verse by verse, preaching through entire books in the Bible. I think this should be the meat and potatoes. It's my persuasion. You start in chapter 1, verse 1, and you move consecutively through the entire book. I can't remember if I quoted this earlier today. I, I, I said it at some meal with someone. I was with Dr. MacArthur two weeks ago. He said this, the Bible is not a collection of verses, it's a collection of books. These books contain verses, but they were written as books. Just makes sense, we would preach it like he wrote it. We would preach them as books. Um... This ensures a balanced, steady diet of the Word. This ensures that the preacher doesn't ride his hobby horse. Listen, there's certain doctrines I just love to preach. Man, I'm just lit up to preach them. You know, I mean, just bring your lunch. I'm, I'm here all day preaching this. There are other doctrines that uh, are a challenge for me. There are other doctrines that are not quite as compelling as others. We all have tendencies like that. But as you're preaching verse by verse through books in the Bible, guess what? You just got to keep moving. And you, you, you are guaranteed that there's going to be a proper distribution of different subject matter as you go through the book. God just built that into each book. And certain truths are unavoidable. I mean, every truth is taught, every sin is exposed, every promise is delivered, every invitation is extended, every warning is issued, no hard sayings can be avoided, no controversy can be skirted, no difficult text can be unaddressed. I mean, you just can't come to a certain portion of Scripture and just skip over it and as if nobody in the church figured that out. As, you, as if you think they were all on vacation last Sunday when they were all sitting right there. And you just skipped over verses 28 to 30, and now you're in verse 31. And the church, wait a minute, time out, pastor, time out. You didn't address verses 28 to 30. We want to hear what you have to say about verses 28 to 30. And we want you to tell us what this means for our lives. And so you're going to have to address hot potatoes. I mean, you're going to have to talk about divorce and remarriage as much as you don't want to. You're going to have to talk about financial stewardship. You're going to have to talk about sovereignty of God. You're going to have to talk about Legalism. You're going to have to talk about all different kinds of things. 
You're going to talk about self-denial and taking up a cross and hating father and mother and brother and sister. Yes, even your own life. You're going to have to talk about, you're going to have to give away all your possessions or you can't be my, def- my follower. <laughs> Explain this to me. What does this mean? Plus, as you preach this way, it's the greatest time saver. I mean, let's just be honest. I, I, I want to save as much time as possible. First of all, you never have the Saturday night panic. What am I going to preach on tomorrow? Just call someone in your church. They'll tell you what you're going to preach on tomorrow. It's the next verse. (laughs) I mean, the whole world knows what you're supposed to preach on. Why are you the only person that doesn't know what you're supposed to preach on for this coming week? Moreover, what you studied in chapter 1 and chapter 2, it all pulls forward. It's a building argument. So that when you come to preach chapter 4 or chapter 5, Everything you studied for chapter 1, it's a part of your preparation. You've been laying this foundation. Further, you model for your church how to study the Bible. If you're just bouncing around all over the place, that's how they're going to read their Bible. Now, what other book do you read that way? I mean, how would you read Gone with the Wind? You just like... Close your eyes and just kind of open it, page 504. Close it next morning. Just close your eyes, open it to page 228. And make any sense out of Gone with the Wind? You don't read any book like that. So why do you do that to the Bible? No, as you preach through books in the Bible, you are modeling for people context, location. You know... What they say in real estate, three important things in real estate, location, location, and location. Thank you. Same as in Bible study. Location, location, location. A text without a context is a pretext. So you model for people how to study the Bible. All of these reasons and more make for sequential Exposition. I would add to that what I said earlier. This is how God wrote the Bible. He, he didn't write it like alphabet soup. He, he, he didn't write it like an omelet. He, he, he didn't write it where it's just all jumbled in there and you can just pull them out in any particular order you want to. He wrote it with this developing argument, this building argument in, in a book with a central theme and a central thrust that, that goes through this book in the Bible. And it most guarantees a proper interpretation of the text. Tim? Because Spurgeon's mentor, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, was George Whitfield, And he said, with unequaled steps, I follow my mentor, Whitfield." Whitfield was an evangelist, preaching from different texts every day. He had a horse, a saddlebag, a King James Version, um, a Greek New Testament, some parts of Matthew Henry, and a handful of sermons. 
And he's a man on the go. Now, let me tell you what Spurgeon did do, because I believe Spurgeon was an expositor. As Spurgeon would stand to read, as, as Spurgeon would stand to preach his one verse, many people do not know, but it's in type in some of his volumes. I have the whole 63 volumes of his sermons. He would read before he preached the entire chapter. And as he read the entire chapter, he exposited the entire chapter. And he gave two, three, four-sentence explanation for every verse in the entire chapter before he would then zero in and dive bomb upon this one text. So he's already handled the whole chapter. There are times when Spurgeon does allegorize that one verse, admittedly. But that's the exception, not the rule. And his primary practice was to take that one verse and explode it and break out its parts. And he would be like what it was said of Alexander McLaren. He had the golden hammer, and he could just tap a text, and it would break out into three parts or four parts. As you read Spurgeon, he is incredibly biblical. And he's incredibly theological. And I think that he falls within the parameters. I don't think all exposition is sequential. We're getting ready to talk about five or six other legitimate expressions of expository preaching. So, I would have loved for him to preach through a book in the Bible. Um, And what he did with the Psalms, I mean, he's got the horsepower to go through a book in the Bible. I mean, what he does with the Psalms, which is the largest book in the entire Bible, is shock and awe. I mean, it's second to none. And we were talking about the Puritans earlier upstairs and how they were, or I was at least with Paul, um, they really weren't strong, what we would call exegetical expositors. They were heart surgeons and they were theological masters, but they were not very, you get their old Puritan commentaries verse by verse. They're of, not of use for us in the exegesis. They're of help in the application. Spurgeon is actually explaining every verse in the entire Psalter and Treasury of David, giving careful attention to authorial intent and to the meaning in its context. So I, I think Spurgeon just had a different form of exposition. I realize there are many people who don't think he was an expositor, and that's fine. It's maybe a matter of semantics at that point. I'm going to say again, worse things would happen than you end up being the greatest preacher in the history of the English language <laughs> in the major city of the world um, So, and be the most read author ever. <laughs> yeah, I'm like a tick on the back of an elephant, you know, making comments on... <laughs> Spurgeon on that. It's a fair question. It's a good question. But I'll sit under his preaching any day and be well fed. I'll tell you what he did in the first six years at the, at the New Park Street um, church. Is he would just take a text. <laughs> Sermon number one and volume number one is Malachi 3, verse 6. 
the immutability of God. I am the Lord, I change not, says the Lord. And he takes that one little verse, Malachi 3.6, and he just pours all of systematic theology through that one verse. And he just pours theology proper. And he just pours really kind of the rest of the Bible through this keyhole. And so on the immutability of God, it's so rich that I think he's just turned 20 years old when he preached this. It's so profound. It's what Packer took to make page one the, 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 to begin knowing God. It was the most profound thing Packer could go find to begin knowing God was Spurgeon at age 20, the first sermon that we have in print. Um, and it's the immutability of God. And so this is how he just systematically works it. God does not change in his person. God does not change in his attributes. God does not change in his word. God does not change in his purposes. God does not change in his judgments. God does not cha- I mean, it's just, it's just God, 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 God. And you're just overwhelmed with an avalanche of Scripture. Um, if expository preaching is biblical preaching, he was a master of biblical preaching. But that's just my thought on that. All right, not only sequential exposition, but let's talk about the other forms of expository preaching. The second would be sectional exposition, and by that I mean a section of a book in the Bible. You don't preach the whole book. You just preach a slice out of the book. Um, For example, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Probably the most influential sermons to come from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the most influential preacher of the 20th century, was his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you would do well to go preach Matthew 5 through 7. And if you're a young man, it may not be the best thing for you to preach all 28 chapters of Matthew 28 until you've found your voice and learned how to, to really preach over a long period of time a lengthy book. The best choice you would make might be to preach... Matthew 5 through 7, or the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 16, or 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. That's the only chapter Jonathan Edwards preached verse by verse through. Or you could do the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3. That would be a gangbuster series. Or you could preach the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. That would be a killer series. But the point is, it is a legitimate form of expository preaching not to start with chapter 1, verse 1. You may have to swim downstream and start at chapter 5. And it's a literary unit. It's a, it's a standalone discourse. Third, it's what I want to call, what does it say in your notes? Topical. Doctrinal. Doctrinal or thematic or topical, whatever word you want to use. Now, I know when we hear topical, we think awful. You need to understand some of the greatest series John MacArthur has ever done are topical. You need to understand some of the greatest sermons MacArthur has ever preached are topical. And he's the, the Earl of Exposition. Um you lock on to a biblical truth and you go all over the Bible 
and you pull it together. Um, you could do a series on repentance. One of the brothers earlier said, no one's preaching repentance. We need preaching on repentance. Great, give them a series on repentance. Start in the beginning of the Bible and go all the way to the end. And just John the Baptist and Jesus and Peter and Paul and end up with the seven letters to the seven churches. You know, what, what's the remedy for the five of the seven? Repent! That would be a great expository series where you take a doctrinal truth in the Bible and you trace it out throughout the entire Bible or you can take one book in the Bible and do a series or do a sermon and you go to the various verses that address that particular truth. For example, you could go through the Gospel of John. Um, I'll be going... I, I, I'll be going... This month. Are we in September yet? Yeah. 2015, right? Okay. <laughs> That's A.D. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll be going in a couple weeks to preach with... <laughs> how, how fun is this? R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. I'll do a Bible conference with them. I'm assigned to preach total depravity and definite atonement. I'm going to take the Gospel of John and preach um, total depravity. I'll just cherry-pick these verses that deal with total depravity like they're pearls and string them and make a necklace. And then I'll do the same with definite atonement. And I'll just string them all together out of one book in the Bible. You can do the same with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. There are so many ways to do this in one book in the Bible. Um, or you could take all of the writings of a particular author. Uh, you could do Paul's understanding of wisdom. You could do Peter's understanding of suffering and bring expository sermons that are drawn from the deep wells of Scripture as they come together. You could do a series on church discipline. You could do a series on the new birth. And just go to all the texts that deal with that, and it would be rich preaching. Now, here's the deal. In order for these topical, thematic, doctrinal series to have high energy, I believe it necessitates you be doing a lot of sequential exposition through books in the Bible. So that when you come in and do a selected series like this, it, it, it stands out in your preaching. I mean, I've used MacArthur as the example. Some of his best-selling books are just expository series that he's done in the pulpit. Um, Twelve Ordinary Men. It's just a study of the Twelve Disciples. Um, uh, The Master Plan of the Church. Uh, The Anatomy of the Body. Um, I tell you, one of the best series you could possibly do is The Attributes of God. Just do it expository. So, as you come to these different verses, you're going to have to be skilled to carve out the context, authorial intent, um, what the author is saying, what he means, as you come to each one of these. Um, Last Sunday night, I preached at Lasaka 
Baptist Church in Zambia. And they told me that Sunday night it would be the Lord's Supper. Could I bring a message that would be uh, appropriate for the Lord's Supper? Well, I'm sitting in a hut of a house, of of a little place to stay. I don't have any books. I don't have any sermons that really necessarily are appropriate for the Lord's Supper, though in a sense probably any text would be, but I wanted to preach on the cross. So I took 1 Peter. It was an interesting study. I went through every verse in 1 Peter that deals with the cross. And I had a homiletical heading for every verse that deals with the cross in 1 Peter to prepare us. I'll be there in a moment. uh, To prepare us (laughs) for the Lord's Supper. That is a legitimate form of expository preaching. I don't have my nose in the air that like, well, that's not expository preaching. It is because it's biblical and because it has all of the elements of a true sermon. Now, let me continue. There's biographical exposition, which is to take a character or characters plural in the Bible and to develop the verses associated with them, whether this is one message or whether this is an entire series. I just mentioned earlier, you could do a series on the 12 disciples. I've done a series on the 12 disciples, 12 sermons on the 12 disciples. You're going to have to go to a lot of different verses and pull it together. People love biography. There's a reason why you go into a bookstore, if it's worth its weight in salt, it has a section called biography. And if you, have, if you struggle, like I do at times, with application, you've got it built in. Just tell the story of the person's life. The application is screaming. Um, you could do a series on John the Baptist. You could do a series on Joseph or Abraham or David. Fifth, I don't think this is in your notes, but I want to put this in, representative exposition. And here you would expound only selected verses out of an entire book in the Bible. Let's take Isaiah. 66 chapters in Isaiah. It's probably too imposing for most of us. I think it should be preached. I don't mean to say it shouldn't be, but probably most of us have not. Like every verse of Isaiah... While, and Calvin did it. You know how many sermons he preached through Isaiah? 353 consecutive sermons through Isaiah. That's 353. And those were given at 7 o'clock in the morning to a packed house, Monday through Friday. Um, He Deuteronomy, he did 200 consecutive sermons. Job, 157. But most of us are not going to do 353 consecutive sermons through Isaiah. But what you could do and would be a wonderful thing for you to do is to preach 10 sermons on Isaiah and to pick the mountain peaks of Isaiah and to exposit those eight verses in chapter 42, to exposit those nine verses in Isaiah 61 and, and give your people uh, a flavor and a taste for Isaiah 
and to open up portions of the Bible to them that they would not normally read. All right, let me give you a couple more here, and then, and then we'll come to a little rest point. Um, individual, do you have that in your notes, individual? That would be you're an associate pastor, and you get to preach once a year, and this is your Sunday. You're airdropped in, okay? You come into the sanctuary on a parachute, and you're just, you're just airdropped in. You've got one sermon. You're probably not going to preach the entire book of Isaiah in one, in one sermon. So there's a standalone sermon. It's a single exposition, and there's a certain skill involved in picking a passage that can stand alone where you can get to the meat of the text uh, quickly. That's a legitimate exposition. What's the next one you have? That would be Christmas and Easter. I'm with Spurgeon. We're stuck with Christmas. Let's make the most of it. (laughs) Um, it, It's an opportunity to preach um, the birth of Christ, whether from the Old Testament or the New Testament. That's a form of expository preaching. And then um, funeral. Do you have funeral there? Yeah, I preach expository sermons at funerals. Uh, the most evangelistic sermons I probably preach are preached at funerals, taking a passage of Scripture and expounding those. Now, there's a certain skill involved because most people are not going to have an open Bible in front of them. Most people are just going to be sitting there. And so you need to preach something that doesn't require them to be continually looking down, and they're probably not taking a homiletical outline down on the back of the funeral guide. Um, and so you need to pick something that you can preach without them having to have an open Bible in front of them without them really writing down an outline. Now, I want to add two more. Is that the end of your list? Okay, let me add two more. The next would be apologetic. There is an apologetic exposition in which your attempt is to prove something that is in the Bible. You would give, for example, I've, I've given at Ligonier National Conference 10 reasons why the Bible is the Word of God. That's an apologetic. That is a defense of the faith. Um, R.C. Sproul preached a message, a defense for the existence of God. It was a powerful sermon with many texts involved. Um, so you, you are defending something. You're proving something. And then, polemic. That is a defense of the faith that is an exposure of error. I mean, this conference that will start back up tomorrow night and be on Sunday, it's a polemic conference. Yesterday was, by and large, a polemic conference. It's to expose error and to refute that which contradicts Scripture. And so there is a time to preach against certain things. Now, you, 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 people cannot live their Christian life on against sermons. And, and some people have a ministry of just controversy. Uh, they're against this, they're against that, they're against this, they're against that, and they just drag their people around. This needs to be a more rare kind of message. But it's a necessary message that will require at times, depending upon what's going on in your church. Um, or what's going on in the culture or in the world, why we are against abortion, why we are against homosexuality, why we are, it's a polemic against. 
So, all of that is under text exalting. I, I feel like I need to stop just to let you breathe for a second. And you've been writing so fast, and I've just kind of sped through that, like on the back of a motorcycle. Uh, yeah, just stretch right there and let your friends hold your arms up. So, let, let me just throw it open. We're not going to leave right now. Let me just throw this open. What question would you have? What comment would you have? Yes, sir. Yeah. Psychobabble. Um, I, I, I mean that there's no sin, that everything is some um, repression or neurosis or syndromes or your problem is you've got a complex. Uh, your, your mother wouldn't let you saw the leg off your table when you were young and so now therefore you're just, you can't get along with people. No, you've got a massive rebellious heart is what you've got. So the, the Sunday morning sermon becomes kind of a group therapy. It's therapy, not theology. And, it, and it's a secular diagnosis of spiritual problems. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, it's a big story. Uh, the whole sermon is a story. I mean, the sermon starts off sometimes, I'll never forget when I ran to the empty tomb and I looked in and it was empty. You know, it's just one big drama. You may just not have a costume on, but it's, it's one big story. And they argue people want to hear a story. They, they don't want didactic truth. And so it's like, oh, so you're smarter than God. Um, so that's what narrative preaching is. Um, I, I think it's nauseating myself. Uh, it gets away from didactic, linear, doctrinal preaching. Um, but good question. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I love Dale Ralph Davis. He's a tremendous asset to the body of Christ. So I haven't heard him do one of those sermons. What is it like? In one sermon, he does what? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've given three sermons on Job. I mean, that's, so it has to be right. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have a problem with that as long as it's the exception and not the rule. Um, I'm not a big fan of 66 sermons on 66 books in the Bible. Um, I think it just skims the surface. I've done that, but I did it at a men's Bible study um, Friday noon, not, not in the pulpit on Sunday morning. Um, so I'm not a big fan of, of that. But yeah, if it's a Bible conference and three sermons on Job, sure. And, and he's such a capable expositor and a capable teacher. I'm sure the way he would do that would be a careful handling of the main thrusts and know where to go down into the text. That, that, that's fine. I, I just wouldn't want a lot of that. And he wouldn't do a lot of that. Yes, sir. 
Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm totally on board with you. That's why I said a series of sermons that would go through this. Not one sermon to cover the entire Bible on, you know, repentance of the new birth. I mean, surely you have more to say than one sermon. Though it could be if that was your last sermon to ever preach and you knew you were being executed the next day. And so you're just going to have to get it all in. But, uh, um, you know, I would prefer um, a series over a sermon. And um, I agree with MacArthur. Slower is better than faster. Deeper is better than shallower as just a general rule. Yeah, Paul. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, let me just say, as a footnote for MacArthur, yeah, while he's not in every hospital in Los Angeles, he's actually shepherding pastors around the world, and which is kind of the ministry I've ended up being in, where you're not pastoring as much as you might like to in your church because your preaching has put you at a certain point that now you are shepherding 200 pastors. I mean, it's unbelievable the pastoring he does. Um, so it's it's not that he's just sitting at a desk and 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 writing sermons and then going to bed at night. I mean, I mean he's he is solving so many issues and tying untying so many knots with Africa, Europe, England, Scotland, China. Uh, America, East Coast, Mexico, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. He probably does more pastoring than most pastors do. It's just spread out around the world because of his gift of preaching in the visible place that he's been put in. Well, let me just give you a general rule on that, Paul. You've got to divide your time. So this is what I did. This is just a way to do this. doesn't mean you have to do it. It's the way I did it. I gave my mornings to God. I gave my afternoons to men. I gave my evenings to my family. That's pretty simple. It's with a basic understanding that not every hour in the day is the same. Pastors want to know, how many hours do I put into a sermon? The question is not how many hours. The question is which hours. As you think a whole lot better during some hours than you do other hours. And it's not only which days did you prepare your sermon, or how many days, but which days. Because even during the week, it's a roller coaster. You're going up the hill, down the hill, up the hill, down the hill. So wise is the man who knows that not every hour in the day is the same, and not every day in the week is the same. So... 
um, I gave my mornings to God. Um, I wake up very early. Uh, my brain works best early in the morning. My, work, my brain works less efficient in the evening. So, I want to give God the best hours in which my mind is working the best. One hour in the morning is worth three hours in the afternoon for me. So, if I'm going to wake up early, that means I have to go to bed early. So, you have to be like an athlete who disciplines your body and disciplines um, your going to sleep. When I played college football, I mean, there, there was a curfew at night. I had, I had to be lights out, in bed, coaches coming up and down the hallway, looking into the rooms. Are you under the covers, in bed, lights out? And you have to be up at a certain time. There's a regimentation. Um, that carries over for me into the ministry. Um, I don't receive phone calls in the morning. I don't talk to people in the morning. I mean, you could be on the, on the edge of a building and you're ready to jump off a building and I'm the only person in the world that can talk you off and I'm going to send one of the deacons to talk to you. <laughs> because you're not really at that point. You think you're at that point. You're not really. You're bluffing. You're not really at that point. It's taken you 40 years to ruin your life, and, it, and I'm not going to just, like, jump in five seconds. I mean, it's taken forever for you to get to this point. It's going to take, take a while to dig you out of this ditch. I don't have to be there right now. You know, it's like God loves me, and you have a wonderful plan for my life, you know? So, um, and I, for with me, the way my brain works, there is a building momentum. I, I need a two- to three-hour block of time to study. I don't even want to start to study something unless I have two to three hours to, to, to do that. And so I need the whole morning. I'm not returning phone calls until 11.30 because you're going to lunch and have to be someplace at 12. So therefore, there, there is a, a, a built-in back end on this phone call because I, I don't want to spend the whole day talking to you on the phone. I, I just need you to get to the point. Um, I don't eat lunches out like most, a lot of pastors in America do. I have lunch brought in. If you want to eat lunch with me as a pastor, we'll do it in my office, and we'll, it'll be served there because I don't want to waste 20 minutes to drive to the restaurant. I don't want to wait 20 minutes to place my order. I don't want another 20 minutes for it to be delivered to me. That's time I could be doing things for the Lord. And so I'm, I'm very time conscious and time efficient. And it's interesting to note that the Great Awakening started... Edwards preached two sermons on justification by faith in November 1733, and then in December he preached a sermon on, the pre, on procrastination and the preciousness of time. Now, we don't have time to waste. And that's something for the African culture to, to buy into. Because I keep asking questions about why are people late and why is this and... Why, why hasn't this happened yet? And everybody just keeps saying, well, that's Africa. I said, no matter what my question is, the answer is the same. Well, that's Africa. <laughs> I need a new answer. <laughs> but Edwards understood, and I have it in my book on, on uh, the unwavering resolve of Jonathan Edwards. I go through his resolutions. It begins with glorifying God. And Edwards understood in order to glorify God, he has no time to waste that he dishonors God to waste time because there is a predetermined work that God has given 
him to do and every one of us to do, and you only have a certain amount of time to do it. You have sufficient time, but as soon as you begin to waste time, you now have less time, Edwards would argue, to do more work. And you're going to give an account for your time at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, that really woke people up in Northampton as Edwards began to to preach on that. So, I I feel the weight of that. So, um, then in the uh, then in the afternoon, I that's for men. Whether it's hospital, whether it's for you want to have an appointment and come see me, but if you have an appointment, they're going to be stacked together. So there's a back end, and as you come in, there's a certain time that you that you realize that 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 you have, and so someone else is coming after that. So this is not going to be like a three hour, you know, counseling deal. Let's get to the point. Um, I meet with staff, I return phone calls, I I write emails, I um, do any number of things, Uh, church worship guide, bulletin, letters to the church, whatever, call elders, meet with them, deacons, that's all in the afternoon. Someone cancels, then that time is plugged into study or prayer. Then the afternoon, or the evening is for my family. Now, we had Sunday evening church and Wednesday night church, so that's just a given that we're all going to be at church together, but those other five nights, I'm with my family. And I'm, I coached their baseball teams. I went to their dance recitals. I coached the basketball, baseball. I drove them to the golf tournaments. Uh, I'm, in, I'm, on, I'm in the floor in the den wrestling with my kids and tickling them. I'm... I'm I'm playing catch in the backyard. I'm up in bath time at our house was like the Olympics every night. I mean, just to get four kids bathed and to separate the guys from the girl and, and the whole thing, and then to get everybody into bed, and then everybody wants a drink of water, and, and, and it's just kind of this whole cycle and a bedtime story and a Bible story. I mean, I'm all in. And that's in the evening. I'm, I'm not out trying to win the world and not a part of what's going on here. So those simple divisions for me, Sunday was King's Day, Monday was Queen's Day. So my wife knew Monday was coming, that I would be so focused for what I'm doing on Sunday that she says she knows not to say anything to me from noon on Saturday till noon on Monday. I'm in the zone. But she knows I'm going to spend Monday with her. And I'll come out of the zone. And whatever you want to share with me, I'm going to take you someplace. We'll get a meal. We'll drive in the car. We'll talk. We'll visit. We'll catch up. And there's probably been 10 people who have talked to her at church trying to get to me. And they talk to her. And they're giving the message through her to me. And I'm getting caught up on what I need to be caught up on. How are you doing? We talk about the kids. Where are the kids? What's going on with them? That's Monday, Queen's Day, Sunday, King's Day. So Paul, just kind of as a general way, so you're asking me, what about this, what about that? Yeah, I mean, I did all those things. If it can fit into, I mean, I can't be at every hospital bed. And I don't think I'm supposed to be at every hospital bed. I'm not a Catholic priest. (laughs) In fact, if you see me in your hospital room, you don't want to because that means you're about to die. (laughs) These are last rites. (laughs) 
So, I mean, you know, you just balance that out. And, um, yeah, Tim, I see your hand. Yeah, I do it in the morning. Yeah, uh, meet me at 6 in the morning or 5.30 in the morning. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? It had an amazing effect on elder meetings. Rather than have a five-hour elder meeting in the evening, I mean, we, we, I mean, we can do this in an hour and a half in the morning if we just get to the point. Um, and if we meet, need to meet again tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock or 5.30, I mean, we'll, we'll do it again until we finish it. But in the evening, they just tend to be filibusters. You know, they just tend to go on and on. Now, that, that's just my perspective on this. It doesn't mean that that's the way it works in your church or some other church. But that was kind of the hand I was dealt and the personalities I was working with. I mean, I just had a bunch of guys that loved to talk. <laughs> like a bunch of women, you know. <laughs> and so I just felt like they did a whole lot better in the morning. Plus, remember what I said earlier, one hour in the morning's worth three hours in the afternoon. It's probably worth five hours in the evening. They thought sharper, better, quicker at 6 in the morning than they did at 8 o'clock at night. They were worn out at night. I mean, they just had, like, responsible jobs and were doing a bunch of stuff. But that's just my thought on that, how that worked out. Yes, sir? Time with what? Oh, uh-huh. Subject to time. should be, how long a sermon should be. If it's a bad sermon, five minutes is too long. <laughs> question is, how long should a sermon be? If it's bad, just cut it down to a minute. <laughs> I mean, I can hold my breath for a minute. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to hide in the baptistry and go underwater while you're preaching, and I'll come back up in a minute. Um, this is only a general rule because there's no chapter and verse. I think about 45 minutes is probably about standard. Could be 40. I preach an hour. Now, you need to be able to hold people's attention. Here's the deal. Your, your job is to preach. Their job is to listen. You don't want them to finish before you do. You want to finish before they do. <laughs> so it depends on the man. It depends on his gift. It also depends on the culture. It depends on the depth of the people or the shallowness of the people. It depends on their tradition. Um, there, there are a lot of different factors that, that weigh in. It depends on Sunday morning or Sunday night. Um, I'm going to say around 45 minutes. It, it, it just takes a while to get a 747 to taxi down the runway and get it up in the air, circle the airport, and then for it to land. It takes a while. We're, we're not flying a little crop duster here where we can just get this thing up in a couple feet on a sidewalk and buzz around the neighborhood and land this thing on a dime. I mean, expository preaching 
all of the elements, it, it takes some time to do that. It, it's, a, it's a fact of church history that during seasons of revival and times of great awakening, the sermons became extended because the people's hearts were enlarged. Now, I, I know I, people say this to me all the time, especially when I'm in the States. Don't you think people have a short attention span? So we ought to keep the sermon shorter. And I go, lie. That's not true. I, 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 the same person I saw you at the soccer game. That, that thing went five hours. And then you went to the cricket match. And it was like a three-day cr- cricket match. And then you went to the concert, but you were there for the warm-up before the concert. Then you were there for the act before the concert. And then you lasted through the concert, and you were there for the encore. And you wanted more and more and more. And you're trying to tell me there's an intention span? I mean, I was born at night, but not last night. (laughs) I'm not buying into that. I mean, you said that in such a convincing way, but that's illogical. That is totally illogical. That's one plus one you're trying to make me believe equals 12. It doesn't add up. You do have the attention span. You just don't want to. That's the issue. And if God would get a hold of your heart, you'd be camped out in my front door begging to get into my house to hear more. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. Like, if you're doing... I mean, this will be an extreme, but I mean, if you're doing eight years through Matthew, like MacArthur did, he himself stopped periodically and did a series on how we got the Bible and did a series on the attributes of God, did a series on Satan, God, Satan, and angels, and did a series on um, anatomy of the body. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you, like with my family. We go on a long trip. I get all the kids in the car. If it's a 12-hour trip, I'm going to have to stop along the way, let the kids out, go to the bathroom, play catch with them, run off nervous energy, then get back in the car, and we'll go for another four hours. That's the same way in expository preaching with a long series. Few, few to none of us are gifted enough to just lock in and go for eight years. Yeah, I, I think you would be wise to have some intermissions. Yeah, and they'll, they'll hang with you better when you get back in it. Yes, sir. Um, I, I won't say it's an across-the-board tragic departure. I, I'll say that it needs to be kept within limits. And I don't know that I want to be known for that. Um, I want to be known for preaching the Bible. Um, I think 
it, it depends on your congregation. Um, if, if you have a cross-section of people in your congregation who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, you're just a dog chasing your tail to try to give all the culture stuff because they've come from 18 different cultures. I mean, which culture are you going to speak to? I mean, for example, at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, they have 19 people groups every Sunday morning that are in church. I mean, you've got Asians, you've got Mexicans, you've got Russians, you've got Americans, you've got, I mean, large contingencies of all those. Plus, I mean, there's more in little subcategories. I mean, like, so which culture, I I mean, are are you talking to? Because, I mean, they've come from totally different worlds. Um, so, only some of it, I, I, I think apologetics can go, only go so far. Um, and if you put all your eggs in that basket, you're not going to grow people. Um, the value of apologetics is, it, it can be a pre-evangelism. You just got to make sure you get to the evangelism part. Um... So that, that's just my thought on that. You, you can probably tell I'm not a big culture guy. And your, your, even your, your messages will be very limited um, to a particular culture. This is only me on the answer, only because you're asking me. This, this is not going to, like, this is, doesn't have to be er, the way everyone in this room does this. But since you're asking me in front of everybody, <laughs> I, I, I don't go for that. I mean, I'll get in my car and drive to that guy's house and ask him some questions. I'll take those answers and maybe use it as a part of the application rather than putting him up because he's not a preacher. Um, and I, I think that there needs to be preaching in the pulpit. So I'm not turning the pulpit over to him. A wonderful guy, godly man, godly doctor. I need to know what you know, but I just don't need for you to stand in the pulpit and give this. This is part of my research. This is part of my study. So I'm going to get that information from him, and then I'm going to give it. That's the way I would approach it. If if you've done that, it doesn't mean you've left the faith, or, or you know, or whatever. Don't don't take it that way. So, yeah, I saw another hand. Yes, sir. A particular what comes to mind? Sin. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how that happens? <laughs> I mean, it's called providence. <laughs> Well, what I would do, I mean, I rush in where angels fear to tread. I mean, you know, I've, I've learned kind of the hard way. I mean, I go ahead and preach it. And I see that as a wonderful providence of God. And the timing of God is unbelievable. I mean, I can't tell you how many times God has brought me to a particular text that I announced. I started this book, you know, two years ago, and now here we are. And this issue ha- has come up. And, but, but here's the deal. Everybody knows I'm going verse by verse through this book in the Bible. Everybody knows I'm not on a witch hunt. Everybody knows I'm not, like, looking to, to be a sniper on this and, and have an assassination of somebody. This is the next verse. Everybody knows this. And so I know I have a date with destiny here. I mean, God has orchestrated this. So I'm going to preach it. Now, I may, and I have done this, call that particular person before church and say, I know we just visited about materialism or racism or whatever it is, and I'm actually addressing that this Sunday. Oh, thank you. I'm addressing that this Sunday. I just want you to know I I haven't gone out of my way to address what we talked about in private, Um, and I hope you'll be here. And I've already said to you what I'm going to say in this sermon anyway. But I just want you to know I'm not on a, I'm not on a headhunt. I'm not a headhunter. I'm not doing this just to um, back you into a corner in front of the whole church. That's, that's not why. It's the, just the next verse. So please be there. And I think God would do much good in your life to hear it. He's done much good in my life to hear it. But it's just the next passage. By doing that, you, you, you defuse the bomb. And they will actually hear what you're saying rather than just immediately react against. That's just human nature to blow up and react and like he's betraying this confidence and now in front of the whole church and everyone in the church knows he's talking about me. And it's like no one in the church knows I'm talking about you, but you feel like everyone. I would just call that person. And it really may even be a part of winning that person over as you go through this explanation, that you cared enough about their feelings to not want them to be unnecessarily bruised by this. But I, I think you're a man under, under orders. You've got to preach it. God stacked the deck. I mean, God's laid it out for such a time as this. So you can't back off. Yeah, that's a great question, though. That's a very practical question. And, I, I mean, I've lived in that. Yes, sir. Yeah, right. Yeah, it could be a good teaching tool why other people believe wrongly. (laughs) 
humility and how I learned it in five steps. Uh, uh, yeah, I think you could do that. I think it'd be very insightful. I mean, I mean, I, my elders have asked me many questions. You know, well, why do people believe in infant baptism? Why do people? Why are they all millennialists? Why are they this or that? I mean, if you can't talk about it, I mean, that's just insecurity. So yeah, you can address that. Sure, and a lot of times it comes out in Q and A's anyway. Yes, sir. Oh, well, I was talking, uh, in, in my mind, I had more of a Sunday school setting. Um, I, yeah, I think that there is wisdom involved in where and when you do that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to preach a certain sermon of why so, so-and-so is wrong, and they're in the body of Christ on Sunday morning. It, it would depend on what the issue is, but I'm not doing that as a Sunday morning Thing. I, I, I had a large Sunday school class. I had a large men's discipleship group. I mean, it might be something I'd air out there. Or Sunday evening, you know, might be appropriate. You might pack out the building, you know. Like tonight, I'm going to preach on why whatever, whatever is incorrect or whatever. And it, it depends on how you would do it. Um, but, yeah, that, that, I probably would do it that way. That's a, that's a thanks for helping correct the impression I was giving, given, giving. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So how do you know which book to do next? Great question. Um, there's, there's several factors. Um, I want to know what are the other books I'm preaching at that time. So if, if I'm doing one on Sunday morning on the other on Sunday night, I, I think variety is, is a good thing. I, I'm wanting to counterbalance that in another direction. So if I'm doing Job on Sunday morning, I probably am not doing Lamentations on Sunday night. <laughs> and then follow that up with imprecatory psalms and, <laughs> and just put people under the carpet. Um, balance is important. So I, I take that into account. Um, I also take into account not only Sunday morning and Sunday night and possibly even Wednesday night, but what have I just preached? And, and because I want to go, I want to consider diversity, Old Testament, New Testament, long book, short book, um, epistle, prophetic, um, didactic, narrative. I mean, I, I want to I be in all, play in all of these different leagues. So that's a factor. Another factor is, what are the spiritual needs that I sense in the church? Where is the church at this particular time? Every book in the Bible has one central theme that is different from every other central theme from the other 65 books in the Bible. It has a unique message. It has a unique emphasis to make. And so I, I need to have pastoral sensitivity to what I perceive would meet what is emerging as a need in our church. And it could be that there have been multiple deaths and there needs to be encouragement. Uh, it could be we're about to launch a building program and, and we need to kind of move forward by faith. 
Um, it could be I sense that there are more unconverted people now that I'm here than what I realized in this church, and I need more of the gospel. Another thing that I would do is I would ask godly people just what their thought is. doesn't mean that's what I'm going to do, but I would ask the other elders. I would ask spiritually-minded people, uh, tell me your thought on what, would be, what you think would be a good book to do next. I think there's victory in a multitude of counselors. At the end of the day, it's got to be your decision, though. It can't even be the elder's decision. It's got to be your decision. And so, therefore, I would want it to be something that is strong in my own heart, that's a fire in my bones. I wouldn't want to start a book that doesn't, um, that doesn't do something to me in a very positive way because as I preach this, it's got to pour out of me. And, and so that would be um, another factor. Um, I think also the length of the book would be a factor. And what can your church endure as far as the length of a series? There have been several times when I was a younger man, my wife would remind me. She would say this. She goes, Steve, you're not pastoring 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. You know, you don't have James Montgomery Boyce's congregation. They're, I mean, they're used to long series. You're, Steve, you're not preaching. You don't pastor Grace Community Church in Los Angeles. I mean, it's taken 47 years for MacArthur to get the congregation to that point. Um, and so the, the length of the book is also uh, an issue. And, and I think some books are easier to preach than other books. They just naturally divide out better. And, and it, are you experienced? Are you not experienced? Um, also another factor might be what... what resources and tools do you have available to you to, to help you? Do, you? do you have good commentaries for, for this book? Do you have any expository examples that you could look at and appeal to to help you in, in that matter? Um, also, do you understand what are the, theolo- what are the interpretive challenges of this book? Are you, are you really ready to untie those knots? Um, at the be- in, in the MacArthur Study Bible, at the beginning of each book, there's an introduction to each book in the Bible, and there are multiple sections, let's say six sections, the last of which is interpretive challenges. It's a wonderful study Bible that actually gives you what are the toughest knots to untie in this book. You need to know that on the front end. And as you're, especially a younger guy, and you're going into a book, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow, I should have gotten out ahead of this parade. Because now I've got five days to, to solve the mystery of the pyramids. Um, and so you need to know what those are before you get in. Also, you may get into that book and like a third of the way in and realize, oh my goodness, I didn't realize he's talking to unbelievers, he's not talking to believers. And you've got to go back and like change those messages. You need to know that on the front end. And so it's how well do you understand that book in the Bible before you begin to to preach it. I mean, you've got to know more than the first chapter. So I don't know if that, if that helps or not. I think the answer is in the middle of all of those issues. Did I see a hand over here? Yeah. Ivor. Yeah. I, I don't have a neat, tidy answer for this. Um, 
we're to be in prayer always, and yet there are to be seasons of prayer. So it's not either or, it's both and. Um, I, I pray uh, regularly, obviously. Is that what you're asking about, prayer? Yeah, I, I pray uh, at the outset that God will open my eyes. I confess sin, which would be a hindrance to understanding the Scripture. Um, I, I dig in. I'm consciously aware that I, I need God to give me eyes. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 18, is a verse that I repeat a lot and pray a lot. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous truths in your law. Um, I need illumination. I need the gift of enlightenment. Um, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, and he is the teacher. Um, and so throughout my, under, my, my I'm trying to understand this passage, I'm, in, I'm constantly in prayer. Uh, I am in prayer as I'm trying to now pull it together and package it in a sermon. Sometimes it's not like I've just stopped everything and I'm praying. I'm sitting at my desk with with all this open in front of me, and I'm praying as I'm pulling this together. Sometimes I'll be so worked up and excited, I'll just have to get up out of my chair, and I walk around the room and pray while I'm walking, uh, and then sit back down. Um, I'm in prayer um, as once it's finished, I, I preach it to God in the sense of go through my notes and confess sin where my life does not measure up. Um, so, sometimes people say, well, do you, you preach sermons where your life doesn't measure up. Well, I'd never preach then. I mean, I, my life can't measure up to my sermons. I mean, that's the divine standard. Um, and so I have to confess that to the Lord. Um, the entire time I'm in the car driving to church, it's just one prayer session, asking God to do many different things. And those prayers have changed over the years, really away from me, more towards the people, that God will bless them. It's not about me. It's about God using me, though, in their life. So I'm praying more and more for them, that they will understand, that they will receive, that they will apply, that they will be blessed, that they, their children will be saved, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as well as that the glory of God will be put on display and that God will be honored. The whole time during the service while we're singing, I'm praying silently. Um, I'm singing, but I'm praying. I'm dependent upon God. As I walk into the pulpit, I'm praying. Um, as I'm preaching, I'm con- consciously aware of the Lord, sometimes more than others during the sermon. Um, and I'm asking God to give me the strength, to give me the, the whatever it is that, I'm aware of at that moment that I need. After I preach, um, I, I think the 15 minutes after you preach may be the most important time of your ministry. Um, and I'm consciously dependent upon God that I end up talking to the right people. Because there's some people who just want to come up and talk my ear off about nothing. I, I, you know, I, that's not who I want to talk to. I, I want to talk to the wounded deer that's been hit with this arrow. And so I'm looking around for the guy over in the corner who's waiting for everyone to leave so that he then will come up and talk to me. And I'm in prayer just that I can connect with those people. Um, When I get in the car and drive home, I'm praying the whole way home that the seed of the word that's been sown, that Satan will not snatch up the seed, that it will not 
fall on shallow soil. Um, I, I, I'm home. I plop down in my, I've got a little red chair. My wife brings me something to drink. I mean, I'm just still replaying in my mind the whole sermon. I mean, what I wish I hadn't said, what I wish I would have said, what I wish I would have said better. I mean, I'm in a spirit of prayer um, that God would take my awkward sentences and point them into their hearts. Uh, I mean, I rest for a moment. I go back up into my study, and I'd start it all over again for Sunday night. So um, that's just the way it works in my life. Um, I'm consciously aware of my need of the Lord. I've died publicly enough times, you know, to preach without uh, a dependence upon the Lord. I want to be dependent upon God. And some of the worst sermons I've preached have been when I've had the best notes. And I'm just not dependent upon God. I'm dependent upon the notes. And there's a difference. And it just won't come out of me well. And other times, my notes... I've done the best I can, but they're just not as good as I want them to be. And there's even a couple of gaps on the page, you know. And I don't know. I just get up, and it's the wind of heaven blows. But I'm so dependent upon God. I mean, I'm praying, God, do not let me embarrass you. God, do not let me... I don't want to give an account for this sermon on the last day. God, you're going to have to intervene. God, you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to override. I don't know what else to do, God, at this moment. God, I confess I don't pray enough. I'm just praying right now, you know. And then God gives me what I need. But I'm not a mystic. And I'm not looking for a feeling or like there's a time clock and I've done an these many minutes or hours of prayer, um, it's just in the flow of my whole ministry. Yes, sir. Well, there's no day that's the same. So that's very hard to answer. Um, I I have a capacity to lock in on something and and write it out. Uh, You know, MacArthur has said, you know, the key is keeping your gluteus maximus glued to the seat. (laughs) And and you just do it till it's done. Um, I'm more of that school then, like, I need a break, because I'm, I, I try to have a break, and I, I can't have a break until this is finished, I, I, I find myself back, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I probably am on more on the side of obsessive personality that I'm going to, I'm going to get to the bottom of this until, until I finish it, and I have a lot of deadlines, so books and chapters and articles and sermons and messages and et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I, you, just, you just do it by God's grace. But that's my personality. That's, that's my temperament. You know, for example, and this is a part of knowing yourself. All four of my kids went to Master's College. 
My daughter graduated number one. She graduated perfect 4.0. She had every assignment finished a week early. She's just a machine. Organized, never procrastinates, out ahead, pays attention in class, just the model. Then I've got three boys. <laughs> and they are the, the, the night before this all-out cram session, chugging barrels of coffee, and, and then, even at that, turning in a paper at the end of the class. You know, you've got until 11.59 when the class is over to turn this thing in. There's just different temperaments and personalities that play into how long you sit at a desk and how well you work. And for me, it depends, when's the deadline? Yeah, if it's not due for a month, I may get up and walk around. But I, it's never due in a month. It's always due in a day. And so I, gotta sit there, I have to sit there and do it. I don't have the luxury to walk around because it has to be done now. And then I exchange this now for another now. <laughs> but I, I'm an old athlete. I like pressure. I, I want the ball in my hand with two seconds to go in the game. I, I rise to a higher level of concentration and efficiency. If my daughter had to function that way, she, she would just wilt. And, and my brother, who's a cardiologist and a physician, super smart guy, I mean, if he doesn't have something done, like, way in advance, he's always on me because, like, well, you've known for a year that you were going to have this book due. Well, it's just, I, I just work better under pressure. So I purposely don't start things till. No, it's true. I really don't. It's, it's like, how long would it take me to write this sermon? How much time do I have? If you give me 60 hours, I'll take 60 hours. I don't have 60 hours, but if you... 40 hours, 20 hours, 10 hours. So I have to purposely wait until 10-hour mark so that it's got to be done by the end of this. That's just the way it works for me. You have to know yourself. You have to know how you're wired. And you can't walk in another man's shoes. And, and you can't wear Saul's armor. I mean, you, you've got to be you on how this works for you. And some people just do more than others. Some people are overachievers. Some people are underachievers. Some people get more out of their gifts. Some people get less out of their gifts. The reformers did the work of 40 men. I mean, there's just some men who are called to do certain things that they're given a God-given drive to do it. Other men aren't called to do certain things, and they're not given that drive to do it. So there's not a one-size-fits-all answer on that. Uh, you, you, couldn't, you can't walk in my shoes on that, and you wouldn't want to. It's too weird. Yeah. Yes, sir. How do I guard against pride? Number one, I've heard myself preach. It's very humbling. I mean, the, the most sanctifying influence in the world is the Word of God 
in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, I, I get to kind of live in the Word. It has an enormous convicting, sanctifying effect in my life. So, um, and I, I mean, I don't know, I, I have no reason to be proud, though I am proud. We all wrestle with that. It's a root sin. But ministry itself is very humbling. I, 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 you're leading a volunteer army. You know how hard that is? I, I only wish everyone in the church was on payroll. And they had to do what I told, tell them to do. Like, your salary is dependent upon you teaching this Sunday school class. Now do it. No, you're leading a volunteer army. It's very humbling. And everybody, not everybody, a lot of people think they know better than you do. That's just very humbling. Um, just pastoring a church is, to me, one of the most pride-crushing experiences of life. I don't really want to just sit in a pew, but, you know, if I could just sit in a pew, I mean, the pressure would be off. Just come and listen. Man, when you're the guy doing it, it's a very sanctifying thing if you approach it properly and if you truly preach the Word. It's very crushing. And for me, it's like, you know, they ask Billy Graham... I mean, do you consider yourself a success? And he goes, no. And they go, what? You know, millions and millions of people. He goes, I just see those thousands of people in stadiums that don't respond to the gospel. That's what I see. I I see that. I mean, I I see the people who leave my church. Um, I see the people who don't come back on Sunday night. I see the people who are not there at the midweek service. That's very humbling. So there's so many built-in, sanctifying, humbling things in place in ministry as it is. Plus there's thorns in the flesh. You're on the front lines of spiritual warfare. Um, Satan is is after you. Strike the shepherd. The sheep are struck. Or the sheep scatter. I mean, you've got a red laser beam on your forehead. You're, You're a marked man in spiritual warfare. That's very sanctifying. You've got more to do than you can do. You, it's like living in final exam week every week. Um, you, give, you have to write three or four term papers every week, and you give them publicly. And people are grading you, kind of like they're stockholders in a company. I find that very humbling and find that very sanctifying. I know young guys are always asking me, like, how do, how do you escape pride? <laughs> and it's like, well, I'm not comparing myself to you. I mean, I'm comparing myself to Christ, and I'm even comparing myself to MacArthur and Sproul, and I go, my life hasn't really amounted to that much. Um, I'm comparing myself to Calvin and Luther and a cloud of witnesses, and it's like, You know, I, I don't think what you may think about me. I just want to end well. Yeah, and I don't mean that in a self-deprecating, you know, self-martyr spirit. I mean, it's just reality for me.
Mm-hmm. So you lead them. How do you lead them? And they're in your class? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul told Timothy, let no man look down on your youthfulness. So, I mean, you, you can't let that intimidate you. Um, I mean, the first elders meeting I ever walked in, every elder was more than twice my age. Um... And then they look to you to lead, and I know they're not all where I am theologically. I know they're not where I am in my understanding of Scripture. I know they're semi-Pelagian Arminian. Um, I know they have a shallow understanding of Scripture, but I'm here like Christ. I've not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick, and I'm, I'm here to help you. And so you need a servant's heart, and you need to give them the Bible, and you need to speak with all authority. Um, clothe yourself with humility, but to speak with all authority. And you are there by divine appointment, and they, they desperately need to hear what you have to say. If you're rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And so, you need to let rope out and teach the Word. Yeah, and that can be a tough thing. I mean, you look around, they all have gray hair, and, you know, you don't. But you just can't let them look down on your youthfulness. You can't look down on your own youthfulness. You just stand tall in the Word of God, humbly. And in my mind, I'm thinking, they desperately need to hear what I have to say. They desperately need it. And I want to help you. Well, we probably need to take a break. I've noticed that half the group has left at some point to go to the restroom, and the other half have stayed. I I can't read the clock from here, so what time is it? Oh, is it 4 o'clock already? Oh, I had no idea. Wow, okay. Um, I thought it was like 2.30 or something, you you know, I live in a delusional state of reality.